Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And I know this sounds hypocritical, but I do love serving God. I do love doing things for Him. I enjoy serving Him. So, and He knew that because He knew I had a servant's heart. What does the church represent to you? For many, it's a house of safe haven and worship, a place to go every Sunday to repent, to reconnect with purity, a place to go for community, to serve others. The leaders, the pastors, priests, and those carrying just about every other title in between stand at the front of the congregation, their role equal parts ethical and spiritual guide a steward of sorts, keeping watch over Jesus' flock. But as we've seen before on this podcast, occasionally the so-called pristine chapel, the house of worship, becomes a house of secrets. Hell, just about any place people come together for community week after week has the potential to become just that. Every single one of us is, after all, human, guided at times by destructive desires and passion. And every so often, those with the cleanest reputations and brightest smiles are the ones hiding something. And as we've seen all too many times, those we trust the most are the ones with the potential to hurt us the most. In order for us to do this case justice, we have to start at the end and bring you into a place so sacred that microphones and cameras generally aren't allowed inside. It's a place we rarely take you on this podcast, but a place we must start today. That is the funeral of murder victim Randy Stone. Am, uh, am I your hero? If you knew Randy, you had to answer that question at least a thousand times. Today, we're here to pay our respects to Randy Stone and to ask the Lord to comfort the hearts of his family and friends. Randy Stone, 42, of Independence, Missouri, passed away Wednesday, March 31st, 2010. Randy was born June 14, 1967, in Kansas City, Missouri, to Leonard and Clara Bonine Stone. Randy proudly served in the United States Marine Corps during Desert Storm and then in the Army Reserves. He was an independent agent with Farmers Insurance in Independence, Missouri, for 13 years. Randy truly made his mark for the cause of Christ in our big city as demonstrated by all those that came last night and that are here today. Randy accomplished what the Lord had set for him to do. That was to impact people, to draw them close to Christ. He served faithfully for years, driving the bus to bring little kids to church, cleaning anything that needed to be cleaned at the church, 
serving in any capacity as an usher, just anything there was to be involved in, Randy wanted to be there. He didn't just want to serve, but he wanted to serve with excellence. And he accomplished that. Randy loved his family more than anything in this world. Michael, he thought you could conquer the world. Miranda, he would have given you the world. And Teresa, you were his world. The voice you just heard was that of New Hope Baptist youth pastor Justin Cruz, opening the funeral service for former U.S. Marine and loving husband and father to two, Randy Stone, at the Speaks Suburban Chapel and Funeral Home in Independence, Missouri, the morning of Tuesday, April 6, 2010. The crisp, clean audio you are hearing was not captured by the church's audiovisual tech, or even Randy's family. It was captured by Independence, Missouri homicide detectives who were plugged into the chapel's PA system and carefully observing in person and in attendance, looking for any clues that might help them identify Randy Stone's murderer. For everyone else, everyone knew that Randy knew every rule to every game that was ever invented. <laughs> he was the ultimate referee. <clears throat> And for some twisted reason, he never met anyone that he didn't want to hold their hand. If you weren't sure of that, he would ask you, you want to hold hands or something? (laughs) Randy Stone was a God-fearing and loving Christian man. Someone who not only would befriend a fellow Christian, but would insist, according to those who knew him, that he become your very best friend. He was gentle, generous, and kind, and though he was a hardened, trained Marine, he exhibited a thoughtful, playful demeanor that many would take for granted after his tragic murder. If he knew of a need, he would meet it. If he knew of a time he needed comfort, he would comfort. If he needed encouragement, he would encourage him. But Randy wouldn't settle for being anything less than a best friend. And for me, he wouldn't settle for anything less than being a brother to me. My parents came out to visit And he asked me before they came if he could call my mom, mom. I said, you could do that. My mom might hit you, but. (laughs) But sure enough, when they arrived, he called my parents, mom and dad. (laughs) With Randy's passing will come many adjustments for many of us in this room. One big adjustment for me will be my cell phone plan. Now I'll stay under my minutes. (laughs) Randy used to call me every day, and the question he would ask me would be, so, what are you doing? So you'd tell him, I'm working, Randy. He'd say, oh, you're not working. We all know that you're not the one in the family that works. Allison's the only one in your family that works. (laughs) So you'd spend an hour on the phone explaining to him that, Randy, I would be working, except I'm talking to you about how I'm not working. (laughs) Randy had his faults, and anybody that knew him knew that. But the difference between Randy and so many of us is that Randy could admit admit his faults. And he didn't just say, well, that's a fault of mine and move on. But because he strove for excellence in everything that he did, Randy would ask, what can I do to make that better? And if you gave him any kind of advice, he would do it. Randy always strove for excellence. 
Randy and Teresa Stone were married on October 13, 1990. The pair lived their lives for each other and eventually their children, a son named Michael and a daughter named Miranda. The family spent a tremendous amount of time at Teresa's longtime house of worship, the New Hope Baptist Church, where she had been a member for over 30 years at the time of Randy's murder. Her and Randy had befriended the lead pastor, a man named David Love and his wife Kim, after David, or Brother Love as congregants lovingly referred to him, was brought in to lead the church in the late 1990s. I came to this city 11 years ago, and in March of 1999, I met Randy Stone. Randy Stone was still in reserves in the Army. He was active in the military, and he would tell me things about his military service. He, he was a, a patriot, a strong patriot, but he was a veteran. He served in Desert Storm, and that was back in the early 90s. But as we were coming in 1999, what's the next year? 2000. Now, some of you are not old enough maybe to know what I mean when I say Y2K. Anybody can relate to Y2K? Or raise your hand. Y2K. Now, Randy was capital Y, big 2K. I met Randy. He said, hey, I'm putting MREs in my basement. I've got water. He said, now, now one thing about Randy Stone, I loved it when I was around him, but I usually wanted my wife to be between Randy and me. Because if you'd ever sit by him, boy, he'd bruise your arm, wouldn't he? He's got that thing going. I think he had a twitch. He's all the time. And he didn't think that you were listening to him unless he hit you two or three times. Sometimes I'd say to Teresa, Teresa, would you come and sit on this side of him, please? He's about to beat me to death. But he'd say, hey, Pastor, not only am I your hero, but he'd, hey, Pastor, you need some water? You need a generator? You know what he was anticipating? Y2K. He said every airplane's going to fall out of the sky at the moment of Y2K. All the money in the bank. You better get your money out of the bank. He was just, he was big on that. You know what he was anticipating? A storm. And he was making his refuge. That's what he knew to do. That was Randy. It seemed Randy was always anticipating some type of storm, always preparing. First, it was Y2K, when the antiquated computer systems that ran much of the world's communication, banking, and other systems were all expected to crash due to a programming error when the clocks turned over at midnight in the year 2000. But there was another storm brewing, quietly, inside of the Stone household. Over time, as any married couple can attest, Randy and Teresa began growing further apart in their marriage, a revelation that eventually led both of them to seek counseling from their youthful new pastor, Brother Love who at the time of his hiring was just 38 years old. That counseling established a bond of trust between the two families over the years, something Teresa Stone would later fondly recount while discussing her husband Randy's murder with Independence, Missouri homicide detectives. Oh, did I tell you I met your pastor, Pastor David Love? Oh, did you really? Him. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. Yeah, he's, he's super. Him and his family, they're, they've just been awesome. Oh, I, I tell you, that's... Uh, I really was impressed with him. They were, the, they were awesome before this. Yeah, but, yeah, I understand you all. But, were, he told me that you all were actually both your families were, you know, very friendly. We played games together and, 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 you know, go over to the house for dinner and yeah. just, I mean, all the time. 
I've had at least time. three members of your church invite me. I've talked to them oh. me to come out to the church because y'all have, they said you cook. Oh, yeah. And that uh, visitors always get to eat for free. That's right. That's right. I, I cook in the kitchen. Uh -huh. um, Randy and I also had a Sunday school class. I sing in the choir. Yeah. Uh, I clean the church. Mm -hmm. um, but I love it. Yeah. I work I work with the teens, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I... It's just something that, that is the way I was brought up. My parents brought me up that way. And um, it has, um, not only is it my upbringing, but it's something that my heart, my heart desires And you've been there since that. you, I heard you've been there since you were a little girl. I've been same. there since seven, since, yeah. I was in, since I was seven years old. Yeah. That's so I've been, there for 30, I've been there for 31 years. You've seen them come and go, haven't you? Yeah, I have. <laughs> Standing there at the front of the chapel, Pastor David Love, by then a close friend and confidant to the Stone family, was asked to give Randy's eulogy, which he did in earnest. The foundation of his carefully chosen words was built on his interpretation of several biblical passages discussing the storms presented everyday people in life. Death, or these storms, may keep us from anticipating fun. If you knew much about Randy, he loved to have fun. This passage talks about eating, drinking, and being merry in, in, in our terminology. Randy loved to eat. He loved to have a, a good time of partying and loved to be merry, didn't he? Anybody ever heard Randy poke fun at you? <laughs> or maybe I should ask it the other way. Anybody here not have Randy make a joke with you? <laughs> he was fun. Someone from the Kansas City Star asked me, how would you describe him? And I said, well, he poked fun at people. He, was, he loved to be happy, loved to have a good time. He said to me when I first came to town, he said, Pastor Love, I'd like to take you to play golf. I said, well, Brother Randy, my next six games will be my first half dozen. Now, Randy had to go around the house a time or two to figure out what I just said. <laughs> he came back and he said, Pastor Love, you tell me you've never played golf. And I said, you got that right. I'm afraid I love it too much. And I never had. So guess what? Randy said, I'm going to be the first one to take you to play golf. So we went over here to Cracker Neck right after we got through. The bulldozers came in and tore the whole place down. I didn't know my game was that bad. You know, where Cracker Neck used to be right over here where all this industry is. I think the new hockey stadiums right there where I messed up one of my shots. Anyway, that day, Randy said, all right, Pastor, I'm your golf instructor. <laughs> and so we had fun that day. He played till he could win. <laughs> I remember hitting my first shot. John Christian was, Christensen was there, Dale McClung. Randy and me, that first shot I ever took. I, I never had watched the Golf Channel, but the night before we were playing golf, I saw something when I found the Golf Channel. My wife showed me where it was. You know, I, I found it, found I just needed to be square to the ball. So far, I, anyway, I lined up, took my first whack at it, and we were playing best ball, and mine was the one we got to play the next shot on. We, we were all flabbergasted. But Randy, you know, he thought, you know, he thought I'd lied to him. I'd never played before. <laughs> With every marital and personal struggle, Randy Stone relied upon the close counsel of his pastor and now friend, David Love. He regularly journaled about his role as a husband and father, how he could improve, how he could do and be better for his family. But for a man who had literally spent half of his life training and preparing for war, not even Pastor David Love's counsel and friendship could prepare him for the eventual storm that would befall Randy Stone on March 31st. 2010. This episode is proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. 
Look, as a parent, you already know that your children are your priority in life. And it's important to give them everything they'll need to grow and thrive both now and in the future. With term life insurance from Fabric by Gerber Life, you can help secure your family's future, no matter what happens, because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. And their new lower prices could mean potentially significant savings over other providers, with great quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. And you can do it all online. Apply, see your quote, and then personalize your quote to fit your family's need. You could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly brought to you by EveryPlate. All right, look, people who know me know that I can be a bit of a cheapskate, especially when it comes to saving money on food. That's why I love America's best value meal kit, EveryPlate. With EveryPlate, there are no hidden fees, so you can count on the great value week after week. Plus, it's about 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. So you only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients and you take out the guesswork for mealtime. Seriously, instead of dining out, give EveryPlate a try. Their meals are 50% cheaper than your average fast casual meal. So you can put that money saved towards making fun plans for warmer weather. And if you're picky at all like I am, you can actually customize EveryPlate meals to your liking with options to swap proteins or sides and even add proteins to veggie dishes each week. I recently tried the griddle onion burgers with creamy Dijon aioli and oven fries, and I gotta tell ya, not only did I love the toasted garlic butter buns, but I honestly couldn't tell the difference between what I just made in my kitchen and one of my favorite restaurant burgers of all time. So, get started with EveryPlate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code INVISIBLE149. Again, you can get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code INVISIBLE149. That's up to $110 value. EveryPlate, America's best value meal kit. Let's, let's start from the beginning today, okay? Let's, let's go through um, getting in, going to the business, and at times everyone arrived, and let's kind of walk our way through that, and we'll touch base on things again. But let's, let's just start from the beginning. Independence Missouri homicide detectives Steve Schmidley and Jerry Stewart sit with Teresa Stone late in the evening on Wednesday, March 31st, 2010 just hours after she found her husband Randy deceased in his Nolan Road Farmer's Insurance office. It's standard procedure to have the grieving widow recount the day's events leading up to the discovery of her husband's body, especially when that grieving widow also happens to work in that insurance office herself. Your office is open Monday through Friday or on weekends anytime? Here's my, if you want, here's my schedule. Okay. I get in the office at 7.45 every day. Okay. The office isn't open till 9. But I always open the blinds. I answer phone calls at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Or whenever they start ringing, I answer the phone. That's just us. We don't let it go to voicemail. Okay. We just don't do that. Um, he came in about 
And you got there this morning. I got there at 745. 745. Yes. Okay. No one outside, no one never encountered anyone going into the business. No, no one came in except for Dave Ison and he came in a little after eight and the door was still locked because I keep the door locked until nine o'clock. Okay. And that's when Randy arrives. No. Or, Randy, just, or just when business opens. That's, yeah, business opens at nine, right. so I usually unlock the okay. door. Especially so. when I know that he's coming in soon. I usually, a lot, a lot of, sometimes I even forget to unlock it and he'll be at the front door and I'll be like, oh crap, I left the door locked. I just, when I'm there by myself, I always lock the door. That's fine, it's fine. And he, he wants me to, <coughs> so I always keep it locked. And if I don't recognize them, I know my clients. If I don't recognize them. It stays locked. I don't let them in. <laughs> Teresa goes through the Wednesday schedule in detail with the detective. She arrived at the Randy Stone Farmers Insurance Agency office suite early that morning at around 7.45 a.m. to open the office and prepare for the day's business. The suite is comprised of a small lobby and welcome desk. Directly behind it, a row of three offices along a hallway, one for Randy, one for Teresa, and one they use for general storage and paperwork. At the end of the hallway is a small bathroom. The entire space is brightly lit by two large windows and a clear glass door along the front of the small brick strip mall style building, so long as the blinds are open, which is generally one of the first tasks Teresa takes on during her workday, and this Wednesday is no different. At just after 8 a.m., family friend and Independence, Missouri police officer Dave Eisen stops by to drop off, of all things, a blank police department homicide report for Teresa. She had requested a copy of a blank form to fax her son, Michael, who is away pursuing a degree in criminal justice in Florida. Dave drops off the form and hangs around for about 15 minutes before departing. Teresa then readies the office for the day and staffs the phones prior to their scheduled 9 a.m. opening. Since they don't have any client meetings scheduled for this particular morning, Randy isn't planning on coming in until later. He first calls Teresa just after 8.30 to handle a client issue and then phones her again at around 9.30, alerting her that he's planning to work out and go for a run, and then stop for a quick tan before heading into the office later on that morning. The pair are excited to be visiting their son Michael in sunny Florida in the coming days, so he needs to establish a base tan. The pair then exchange several additional phone calls throughout the morning, as they often do, keeping each other appraised of their schedules as they unfold. Randy eventually arrives at the office around 10.30 a.m. From there, it was business as usual. They wrote up a new policy for a customer before breaking for lunch. Randy briefly left to pick up their food from a nearby McDonald's. And after returning, they both ate in Teresa's office at her desk, she apparently sitting on his lap as they often did. While eating, they called their son Michael using their daughter Miranda's phone. They were planning to leave next Thursday on a cross-country road trip to see Michael. Along the way, they had also planned to stop and see Michael's girlfriend's parents in Kentucky, a couple they were allegedly very close to. After spending the night, they intended to hit the open road once more, the trip eventually culminating with five long days with their son Michael in sunny Florida. Teresa left the office that Wednesday at about 1.30 p.m., as she had several errands to run, before picking up their daughter Miranda at school. That's at one thirty then, as if you guys had lunch. Yeah, I went to U.S. Bank. Right, and that's on Mall Road, right by the. Uh, yes, it's just right down the street from our office. Let me find it here. I wrote it down. My 
Carry my right. Okay, yeah, US Bank on the one. I went to the chiropractor. Yeah, and what was his name? Uh, Michael Pardun. Yeah. His wife even called me. Pardun? Yeah, P A R D U N. That's right. He's in Blue Springs? Yes. What time was your appointment there? Well, I was supposed to be there at 1.45 to fill out paperwork, and my appointment's actually at 2. Okay. But the bank was kind of slow, so I didn't actually get there until about 10 till. That's fine. But I called him and told him I was That was your first time there, right? Yes. Oh, first time where? At the chiropractor? Oh, no, 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 no. We've gone to that chiropractor. Okay. Uh, several times. About a year and a half almost. So you left at 1.30, you went to U.S. Bank. Did you make a deposit or a withdrawal or what did you? I just made a deposit. Yeah. I just our monthly deposit. Okay. And then you went down to Blue Springs mm -hmm. to Mr. Pardue's office for- Pardon, uh -huh. Yeah, pardon, mm -hmm. for his chiropractic appointment. Yes. It, my appointment's at two. I got there about 10 till. Okay. And I left there about 2.15. So I had about I had about an hour to spare. So I went to I went shopping to Dress Barn. <laughs> That's right. I went to Dress Barn because it's just right down from Tri City. So I wanted to be close. So I wouldn't run short of time. So I left Dress Barn about two forty one. Yeah. <clears throat> I just ran on up to Tri City and just sat in their parking lot and waited for my daughter to get to school. What time does she get out? She gets out three fifteen. That's when I try to call Randy six times, and he didn't. But he called me back at three oh eight. Right. I did. I talked to him at three oh eight. So you called him six times, got no response. No, and that's not unusual okay. because when he's very busy and on the phone. Mm -hmm. Touching he your phones. Doesn't, he doesn't like to interrupt if he's <clears throat> business. As detectives Schmidtley and Stewart work to capture Teresa Stone's initial statement, one small detail piques both of their interest. On recalling her afternoon appointments and errands, Teresa is very particular with her recollection of specific times. For instance, she departs the dress barn, quote, at about 2.41 p.m. She also has a collection of neatly organized receipts detailing her travels that very afternoon. Not entirely strange in and of itself, but more on that later. Let me ask you Sorry. one more question. Yes, sir. Um, did you purchase anything at Dress Barn? No, I did not. No, no purchases? No. When did you say you left the Dress Barn? I'm sorry. I left at 241. That's when I got into my car. Okay. At 241. Okay. I didn't have that one down. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> I'm trying to be as... No, you're fine. No, you're fine, and we appreciate it. Um, so you said that Randy called you back then he about called me 3 3, I called The last time I called him was 3.08, and he called me right back. Okay, said so he was busy. And said he was he was just really busy on the phone. He was talking to one of our clients about fixing our fence because we have a dog, a little dog, that likes to jump over the fence. I wish I could remember his name. Yeah, I didn't get The last name is Watkins. Watkins. Okay. And if I... If, um, um, yeah, that's all right. No big deal. You're fine. Yeah, you're fine. Let's let's go on from there. How long was your conversation there when you spoke to him about three weeks? Then your daughter came out? Is that where you was at school waiting on your daughter to come out, right? 
Yeah, I uh, I sat there for a few minutes before she came out, right. and I wasn't talking to him, but I was talking to some of the students. They know me, so they'll come out and talk to me and stuff, you know. And um, so I sat there and talked to them for a few minutes. So my daughter came out, and um, then I tried to. I don't remember my. No, I didn't call him. I just text him to remind right. him that we were running by J.C. Penney. Okay. Because and this was after you picked up your yes, daughter? Yes, this was after school. This is about 3.30 because okay. she was late coming out because of her boyfriend. So. You love teenagers. Yes, indeed. Again, with the oddly specific yet mundane details. Teresa recalls to detectives how after picking up her daughter from school at around 3.30 on March 31st, the pair then went through a nearby Sonic drive through to grab some food for Miranda, as Teresa had plans to rejoin her husband Randy back at the office later on that night to begin preparing to transition their business from a farmer's insurance agency to a completely independent branch. Teresa and her daughter Miranda then went to J.C. Penney, Right around the time they had arrived, she texted Randy to keep him apprised of their afternoon errands. After purchasing a pair of sunglasses and a purse for their upcoming trip to Florida, Teresa and Miranda then headed back to the Stone family home where the plan was to drop off Miranda before Teresa headed back to the office to reconnect with Randy. Teresa explains that though she had planned on being back at the office by 4.30, they didn't leave J.C. Penny until around 4.20, so she was behind schedule. She dropped off Miranda back at the house where her parents were also staying. And for someone whose husband was just discovered dead hours before, Teresa, sitting in the small interrogation room, again seems confusingly concerned about a trivial detail, and not at all with the fact that her husband has been murdered. Oh. How long were you there? How long? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just thinking that I, I hope they locked up my car because I have a checkbook. They'll probably lock it up. They, we always lock things up when we there. Because I went home and took my my um, took my stuff in, and my daughter. We took all of our stuff in, and um, I wasn't. I was home. Um, Ten minutes tops. Yeah. Because I just ran my stuff in, so I had on my mom, uh, refilled my water bottle, and left. And daughter stayed with your mom and dad? Yes, my daughter stayed home. Because we were going to be working late tonight. And so where did you go from there? Oh, I went to the bank on the square. <coughs> U.S. Bank. I'm oh, yes. not U.S. Bank. Bank of America on the square. Deposit or withdrawal? I, I made a deposit for farmer's insurance. Okay. And about what time was this when you went to the bank? I left the bank at 4.40. And then that's when I texted. My husband, I can tell you when I text him. I text him. God, I got so many more texts since then. I text Randy at 4.40. So I must have left the, I'm sorry, I must have left the house at 4.40 then. Okay. I'm sorry. I no, man, that's fine. I just didn't really pay much attention to the time. Just that I said, on my way. Okay. And it's not unusual for him not to respond to me. But he was busy. Because when he's busy, he doesn't. So, and so you left your house about 4.40. You said you went up to which bank on the square? The bank, on the, you, uh, bank, bank of America. America. Bank of America. Yes. 
that's where our farmers um, account is through and the place to sweep our account every week or every night. So. Okay, so that was the business deposit. That was a business deposit. <coughs> now the deposit at US Bank earlier, that was? That was a personal. That was a personal deposit, that, okay. That was our payroll <laughs> okay. to pay for bills for tomorrow. That's fun. After making the business account deposit at Bank of America, Teresa then headed straight to the Randy Stone Farmers Insurance Agency offices. She pulled into the parking lot and parked next to Randy's blue 2009 Chevy Malibu. When preparing to enter the building, she noticed the first sign of trouble. The window blinds she habitually opened every single morning, including on this day, had been closed, and the front door was locked. This episode is proudly brought to you by Babbel. Alright, your fondest memories in high school or college probably weren't in your language courses. And believe me, there's actually a better way to learn language than listening to Miss Garcia ask where La Biblioteca is 600 times. It's a language learning app called Babbel, and it's sold more than 10 million subscriptions because it's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Now, I chose French because I want to learn the love language. And whether you'll be traveling abroad or connecting with a family member or friend in a more deeper, meaningful way, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you can actually use in the real world. I love Babbel because I've got limited time nowadays, and they have 15-minute lessons that are perfect for learning a new language on the go or in between appointments. And Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life, not a librarian who's looking for the bathroom 12 times a day. Unlike other language learning apps that use AI for their lesson plans, Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching methods have been scientifically proven to be effective. If you're interested in giving it a shot, right now get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash invisible. That's babbel.com slash invisible for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. This episode is also proudly brought to you by StoryWorth. I bet you didn't know I actually originally got into podcasting by accident. I purchased a nice microphone to record my grandmother telling me stories about the family before she passed away. That's when I found out she affectionately referred to my grandfather as Fuss Budgeter. Yeah, you can't make it up. Anyhow, this year I wanted to make Mother's Day extra special for my mother-in-law, so I got her the gift of StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of options. These are questions you may have never had the chance to ask, like, What's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one full year, StoryWorth compiles all of your loved ones' stories, including uploaded photographs, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Ours is going to our twin daughters, so all of Grandma's personal stories and messages are specifically addressed to them throughout the book. So... Give all of the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash invisible. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash invisible to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash invisible. You get to the office and, sorry, we're trying to get this out of the way. You get to the office and you said the deadbolt's not locked, but the other lock is locked. Yes. You go inside. Open the door, go inside. What do you see? All the lights are off. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
Teresa's phone buzzes loudly during this, perhaps the most critical portion of her interview. She casually apologizes and the three share a brief laugh. And then she's right back to recalling for detectives how she found her husband dead just a few hours earlier on this very evening. Um, I yell. I say, honey, where are you? And I walk into his office and I turn the light on mm-hmm. and, you know, the computer's up. Everything looks fine. I walk into the back room back there and turn the light on. And he's not back there. Which room is that? The storage? The storage room, yeah. Yeah, okay. Then I walk around the corner. To your office? What do you see? Is the light off? Was the door shut? Okay. You said the door door was shut? No. No, the door was not shut. Did you turn the light on? So you could see him lying on the floor then, and the light was off. What did you do? This is kind of important. What did you do once you saw him there? I kept yelling for him to wake up. Did you shake him? I didn't touch you. Okay. What did you, let me, and I, I apologize, I don't mean to, I, we just want to be a little detailed at this, because it's important. Did you see any, I mean, he was obviously on the ground. Um, I saw Blood coming out of his ear. Okay, blood coming out of his ear. And, and his eye was really puffy. And his skin was really discolored. And I noticed he wasn't breathing. But I didn't I didn't want to touch him. I was That's fine. scared. So what did you do to help out? What'd you do from there? I went over, I stepped over him. And uh, now one of those heaters was on a turbine too. Is it, is it already standing up or did you knock it over getting to the No, bottom? it was already laid down when okay. I got there. Alright. When I walked in the room it was laying down. Okay. At first I thought he had his head on it, but I then when I saw the blood go out of his ear, I was That's fine. <laughs> so you reached step over him and what did you do? I stepped over him and I grabbed my earpiece and put it on my ear. And I know you're supposed to dial one one, but I called my parents first, and just told them to come to the office. And then I hung up and dialed nine one one. Where did you call them at your house or theirs? No, I called them from my phone. No, but did you call? Oh, them? oh I called them at. Oh. You see what I'm saying? They were at your house when you left. I know. I don't know if I called her cell phone or if I called the home phone. It's fine. I don't remember. So that you that you called from you put your earpiece on and you I called, called from, from the office from office, your your yes. office phone. I I think I called the house, but I don't remember. That's fine. Who did you get a hold of when you called my the house? mom? Okay. I just told her. I told her. I said I I said Mom, Randy is something's wrong with Randy. I said he's bleeding and he's not responding. He's not breathing. I need you guys to go to the office now. And I was saying it so fast. I had to repeat it several times. Okay. And then I hung up and dialed 911. From the office phone? Yes. And did you stay in the office where he's at doing this or did you go outside? No, when I got on the phone with the operator, she told me to get out of the office. Okay. The dispatchers? Yes. So I grabbed my purse. Did you step over him? Yes, I did. Okay. I stepped over him and walked out. Where was your purse at? On your desk? 
yeah, my purse, my drink, my cell phone, I just kind of set there right on the top of my desk. Okay. And I just, well, when I first walked out, I didn't grab anything. Mm -hmm. And then she asked me to grab my cell phone or something. So I walked back into the room and grabbed my purse and my cell phone. Okay. But I left my watch. The dispatcher told you to get yourself out of purse. Yeah. So you get back outside, now you're waiting for the police and your family to arrive. Okay. Did you, is it the only light you turned on was his office yeah. and the storage room? I believe so, yes. I did not, because <clears throat> my light, where my office is at, you have to turn it on at the door. Yeah. Both of those lights. Okay. One light goes to my office, the other light goes to the main, okay. to the reception area there. Yeah. <sighs> police get their family gets there first, right? No. Please get there first? Aaron. Okay, pilot? Yes. And you know him from church? Yes. So he gets there first, and you start to tell him something's wrong. He says you kind of break down. That's when my earpiece fell off my ear. He knocked it off when he put his arm around me. Okay. All right, so this is the point in Teresa's interrogation when it becomes clear detectives aren't buying Oliver's story. In fact, some parts of it are so downright bizarre, they're difficult to comprehend whatsoever. She explained to detectives that after finding her husband bleeding from his ear, laying on the floor unresponsive in her office, the first thing she does is step over his body the blood pooling there and partially coagulated on the carpet, and retrieves her Bluetooth headset. She then powers it up, connects it to her office telephone, and instead of calling 911 for help, she calls her parents. Her mother apparently answers the phone, and Teresa immediately proclaims, Mom, Dad, come to the office. Randy has been shot. And then, no more than a few minutes later, she describes a vague crime scene to police dispatch but never once mentions that her husband, Randy, has been shot. It's the first discrepancy, the first true alarming red flag, that Teresa may actually know more than she is letting on. Okay. We're going to kind of back up a little bit here. Um, questions I have. One is, why did you decide to step over your husband to get to the phone when you had a cell phone? I don't. I don't know. Just, I don't think I was thinking that's right. Fine. That's fine. I mean, it's just something with that. No, that's fine. I, I, I have no idea why I did. Okay. I really don't know. Um, we talked before about this, but you said you're, we asked you about weapons. Uh-huh. Okay. What guns do you know that he had at, either at the office or anywhere? The only one that I know of that he has yeah. was a little bitty thing. Black gun? Yes. That's what you said earlier. Little bitty thing. It's little. Where do you keep that? And I don't even like touching it. Where do you keep that? He kept it in his office. Okay. Uh, do you know where at in this office that he particularly kept it? I knew you were going to ask me that. And like I said, if you don't know, that's fine. I am pretty positive he kept it in the drawer at the back of his credenza. Okay. There's a small drawer back there, and that's usually where he kept his keys and <coughs> his gun. gun. Yes, because it was easy to... Get. Get to if you need it. And he kept it just because people kind of every so often strange people walk up there. Yes. Okay. He did. Um, 
I asked just before too, there's been no problems with anybody whatsoever. No strange people coming in lately acting kind of odd and will threaten to kill anybody? Well, not, not threaten to kill anybody, but there was one guy that came in probably, and, and Peggy can vouch for this too because she was there when he walked in. In fact, he came in. He came in once when all three of us were there. Uh-huh. And then my husband said he came back once when he was there by himself. Uh, you know who this guy is? No, I have, we have never seen him. How before. long ago was this? <sighs> Teresa provides a description of the strange man who had come into their office several weeks before, back in February as best she could recall. A white male in his 40s with brown hair and a cleanly shaven face, noting how he was also, quote, a bit unkempt in his appearance. And though this strange man, likely someone who was just passing through town, had once asked another office worker for money to purchase a bus ticket, he hasn't been back since, and he had never threatened anyone in the office. But Teresa suddenly remembers that some money had turned up missing after the man came through their office that day. So maybe he wasn't as innocent as he first appeared, after all. But detectives quickly move on from this strange man theory, because robbery didn't seem to fit a potential motive for the case, as there was a paper-clipped receipt with $151 cash just a few feet from where Randy's body lay on the floor, there on Teresa's desk, surely in full view of whoever shot and killed him. Randy's wallet was also still in his back pocket, left undisturbed as far as detectives could tell. So instead, they move on to a few other inconsistencies they've noted thus far, between their initial search of the Randy Stone Farmers Insurance Agency offices and Teresa's interview, including the fact that one of Randy's prized firearms, a 40 caliber Glock handgun, seems to have gone mysteriously missing. Well, let's get back to Randy in the office there. Um, today, you come in and find me do your thing. And you said he has this one small gun. Okay, we found that. You did? Yes. No other guns? No. Okay. Um, Not that I know of. Okay. Does he keep any guns at the house or anything you're aware of? Um, we have a safe, so I think he has maybe one or two in there. Handguns? And sh shotguns that oh. his dad and my dad have given him. Okay, okay. So, what about Brady? Does he have a briefcase? Yes, it was at the office. Is that the, uh, like the metal, metal looking one? one? Yes. Okay. It was standing by his desk. That's what I'm asking. Yes. I noticed it was there. Your office, you know his office better than we do. He had an army can right there as you went door to the left. He had a what? A little ammunition army can. Oh, yes. Is that always there? Decoration? It's, it's been there for a long time. He just keeps forgetting to bring it home. <laughs> okay. He, he, he has an old buddy friend of his that he's also in the insurance business. Uh -huh. Um. And he brought it to him. Okay. He Randy kind of collects them. Okay, that's fine. So there's no threats, no really anything to out except for that guy in February. Yeah. And then until you can find this. Gun-wise, you get the little black gun, which we found today. It was loaded. It was a little 380. Um, Detectives informed Teresa that they found one of Randy's other guns in his office just down the hall from where his body was found. A small 380 pistol loaded and casually placed in the credenza drawer without any trigger locks or other safety mechanisms, in an easily accessible location that would have taken Randy just a few seconds to retrieve in the event of an intruder or other emergency, were he seated at his own desk. In another drawer, there was a sheathed United States Marine Corps K-Bar knife, 
It was just as Pastor David Love noted in the opening of Randy's eulogy. Randy Stone wasn't the type of man to be caught off guard by anything. Dangerous intruder, worldwide computer glitch, or otherwise. So detectives were honing in on their theory early on that whoever came into Randy's office that day knew him personally and that Randy trusted this individual at least enough to let his guard down. So they let Teresa in on one of their other findings from the search of the office earlier that evening, a series of notes discovered throughout the office suite, notes that painted Teresa's relationship with Randy as anything but loving and based on mutual trust. Now, let's go back to some, let's say, downtime in your guys' life. Uh-huh. Okay, we found those notes, you know, it was in his dress drawer. Mm-hmm. The yellow one? Yeah, the yellow notepads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And pretty much it sounds like you had a friend or something on the side. Or well. How'd that go? I mean, we don't know anything about that either. Um, his name is Uh, Yeah, he's a client of ours, and he kind of forced himself on me. And so it kind of came out in a conversation, and Randy was not happy when he found out about it. Okay, he forced himself on you, okay, at the office? No, this is at his house. We were all at his house for a birthday party. Oh. And it so was, he's like a friend of the family then? He's a client. And he, and he's and he and he's a good he is a good friend and he and he called and apologized for what he did and um, everything's been fine. This was uh, probably a year and a half, two years ago. That's what you said, yeah. Yeah. So everything's been everything's been fine. Okay. Since then. I was just wondering why Randy kept the apology letters you wrote for that long. He keeps everything. Every card, every yeah. letter I write. Yeah, there's him, a card too. Yeah. He he keeps everything. I keep everything. Was there anything between you and No, absolutely not. Did he try to make moves on you? Yes. Well, did he do anything specific? What what was what what anger or I mean you said he he tried to force himself on you. I mean was he trying to physically touch you and a man or kiss you or Yeah, he's he was trying to kiss me. Okay. He we were at their house looking at the stuff they had done in their basement and um I just went into the bathroom to look what all the stuff they did, and he came in and kind of pushed me up against the wall, and I said, get away from me. Uh And that was about all that happened. That was about it. So we actually obtained, through a public records request, all photographs from the search of Randy Stone's entire office suite, including pictures detectives captured of this supposed apology letter Teresa wrote to Randy, a letter by her recollection that she wrote some one to two years before the partial contents of which read as follows. My love, I love you so very much. I just felt the need to write you a note. I am so sorry for not telling you about I thought that it was just one of those things that would just go away. I know I should have told you, but I just thought you would do something stupid and regret it later. You are my world, and I should be able to share and tell you everything. I didn't sleep well last night. All I could think about was what happened yesterday. Wow. We have been through way too much junk in our marriage. I just want to put everything that has ever happened in our past. Throw it away and forget it. Throw it away and forget it. Something that, by the sounds of it, Randy would have preferred to do as well, given the nature of the supposed interaction that occurred in one of their clients' and friends' basements. But why on earth would he hold on to that apology letter for nearly two years? Well, detectives weren't buying Teresa's story as they believed the note was, at best, just a few weeks old at the time it was discovered on March 31st. So they press on. He lives here in town, does he? Uh, He lives far enough away. 
<laughs> okay. Then he can stay there. Let me see. Is it in Penance or is it like a... No, he's in Kansas City. Okay. Okay. He's a Kansas City cop. Nice. Okay. Great. But <sighs> I don't I don't start trouble for anybody. Right. So that's... Okay. You know, so... Um, oh my goodness. How old is... How old's... Oh, he's probably... He's probably a bit older than me. 40. Okay. I'm 38. <laughs> I don't know if he was on it. That's fine. I wouldn't want to ask being a gentleman That's here. That's okay. <laughs> but uh, thinking, I'm just thinking he may have been a younger guy or something like that, trying to make a move, you know. Um, no, he, him and Randy have talked in the last several days because he does landscaping around our house all the time. Okay. So So him and Randy did get along after that? Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're fine. Okay. Everything was up in the air. Great. Good. Teresa goes on to explain that after the incident where she claims this man, quote, forced himself on her. The relationship between him and Randy had been repaired. In fact, they had just recently had the man over to the house because he did some landscaping work for them. Teresa even jokes aloud at this point that he was supposed to come back and do even more yard work for them, but that, quote, I don't think that's going to happen now. After confronting Teresa with the note, which revealed the possibility that she may have participated in some type of extramarital affair, a revelation which, if true, represented a fairly solid motive for murder, Teresa momentarily brings the questioning to a stop. Could it actually be that they suspected she had something to do with her husband Randy's murder? I hope this is making sense, guys. I'm sorry if it's not. No, you're fine. You're great. You're great. You're we're, just, we're just trying to put together, like I told you, your knowledge of what we don't know, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, My mom... <laughs> And I don't mean to sound funny on this either, but my mom called me a while ago and said, do we need a lawyer for you? Yeah, that's people's options, but you're, you're going to go here, you're free to leave anytime you want. You're I am. I, I, we're trying to do our best to make you comfortable. I have nothing yeah. to hide okay. at all. Teresa Stone begins weeping again, grabbing a few pieces of toilet paper from the largely untouched roll on the tabletop to her side. She dabs at her nose a few times and then moves on. A bit strange, because up until this point, detectives haven't actually seen her wipe away any tears or wetness from her eyes. And that's because she isn't actually crying at all. And this is about the point in the story where one would typically retain their right to an attorney and to remain silent. Because when enough clues are present that your involvement begins to look more and more likely... You're supposed to just shut the hell up. But Teresa Stone, whether inescapably narcissistic or a sociopath, continues talking, even projecting at times in a bid to throw shade at Randy's family in order to take the heat off of herself. How did him and his sister and everybody get along? Oh, great. Did it? Yeah, because they pretty much rely on my husband to do everything for them. Ah, yeah, he took that spot then. Pretty much, and he got kind of... You know, it's like, leave me alone. I have a family of my own, you know. Yeah. Not that, you know, it's trying to mean or anything, but, you know, sometimes his mom can be kind of obnoxious sometimes. So <laughs> it's like, you know, she still thinks that she's his number one girl and yeah. that should be it. Is his sister married? She was. Okay. But she's been divorced for probably, I don't know, five or six years now. I'm looking at his side of the family now mm-hmm. as far as anybody that's intolerable or a problem with him, you know. No, I don't think I have a problem with uh, with anybody in his family, but his family is a bunch of. I'm sorry, I'm not. I mean, personally, but 
They're a bunch of losers. Mm -hmm. Teresa goes on to explain how Randy's family is largely made up of petty criminals, people who are envious of his incredible success. According to her, they don't even talk to Randy or the family, let alone know where they live. So it's very unlikely they had anything to do with his murder. She just thought she would throw her observation in there about them all being, quote, losers for posterity's sake, I guess. Anyhow, though Teresa has a neatly organized alibi, complete with receipts and check-ins at local businesses, all of which have surveillance cameras, if not her, then who? Well, detectives had more questions for Teresa. Questions about Randy's missing gun. And, oh yeah, there was another note. One they found torn up in her trash can. Well, because we talked to Joe. Uh-huh. You know, Joe says he showed him a gun at the office that wasn't a little one. Okay. He says it was like a lot. I think he did have a bigger one at one time, but I think... It has a laser sight on it, he said. I think he sold that one. Okay. I don't think he has that one anymore, because this little one is the only one I've seen for a very while. How long ago would you think he sold it? And do you know who he sold to? I have no idea. I okay. he doesn't tell me when he does stuff like that. I does I That's fine. I don't know anything about his business. Um, um he it it has been probably a year or so. Okay. Because he replaced it with this little one. Okay. Now other than this uh Mr. nobody else has kind of approached you on the side or had any problems with you and Randy being together or anything? No. Okay. Never. All right. Not at all. So this is a complete surprise. Okay. Someone took my husband's life away from me. Yeah. We're going. That's what we're trying to work on here. That's why we're talking to you first. Here you go. Can you think of anything else? In the trash can? Oh, yeah. The I'm sorry. Back to the letters, the yellow tablet. In your trash can, they had a letter that's made written for about happy birthday and all that. It's about this big. It was all tore up. <sighs> and it says something about, you know, something like you're the most beautiful person or some kind of thing like that. It's all these big ramblings of, of good stuff about... You know, it's about that long, but that big. It's a white letter, and it's black writing, and it's all, but it's all tore up now. There's a bottle of your trash can at your office. Oh. It said, happy birthday. At the top of it, and then at the bottom, it's happy. Then it had all these initials on the bottom, like there were initials meaning something. Well, think about it. I'm going to go see the lab. They took a picture, and I'll see if I can show it to her, and she me a refresher in her mind, you know? No, just a second. We'll be right back. Okay. I heard that. For the first time during her entire interview, Teresa Stone is left speechless. So detectives give her a moment to collect her thoughts while they retrieve a printed photograph of the letter they discovered torn up in the bottom of her office trash can. While detectives are away momentarily, Teresa's phone buzzes and she responds to several text messages forgetting for a moment that the room she's currently sitting in is recording her every move. In a moment of lapsed judgment, she quietly whispers aloud. In case you had trouble making that out, she said, Oh great, 
I forgot about that. The two Independence, Missouri homicide detectives return just a few minutes later after observing Teresa from the interview room's tiny camera. They inform her that they weren't yet able to obtain a copy of the note as it's currently being processed into evidence. But they want to see if she has come up with an explanation for it yet. And boy, has she. But it's a, it's a note about a baby. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, and I've had it for a very long time because I kind of had a secret admirer. It was left um, on my car door. I, I Today? Had, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Where was your car at? At the office? It's not in the car that I have now. Oh, okay. Um, I believe it was. It's been, it, that's been several years ago. And I just found it the other day. I was looking for um, my, um, um, what do you call it, um, dental card. Yeah. And I found it in there. And where was that drawer? It, or? No, no, no. It was in my. It was in my purse. I I have a little thingy that I keep all my credit cards in. Yeah. And it was in there. He's a secret admirer. I, I I don't know who he is. Wow. I've never gotten another note from him ever. No calls. No calls and nothing. Have you guys been getting any calls at all lately with him? Somebody hanging up or anything? Yes. My. Yeah. Uh, let me think. Was it today or yesterday? But the calls show up private, so yeah. I have no idea. Okay. Because um, my husband answered the phone a couple of times, and, well, no, it's probably more than that. And uh, he's, he said, well, I don't know who they are. They keep hanging up. They were in the Emerson so to you, like guy or girl? I never answered it. He okay. did. And he never told me. So I don't know if there's any breathing. I don't know. He didn't say. Okay. He just said they weren't. They just hung Has up. he been getting calls like that you know of? Well, not that I know of, but like I said, I don't know. I just don't know if he would Sometimes we'll tell you because tell we're easy. That's why we're I would think touching base. What's we're touching base to anybody who confided in other than you? No, because, I know he would tell me. Okay. I know he would. And so sets the tone for Teresa Stone's interactions with homicide detectives moving forward. She isn't going to give up any information willingly unless prompted several times first. There was Randy's other gun, the 40 caliber Glock, the one that matches the very caliber used to murder her husband, one that is now mysteriously missing. Oh yeah, he sold that over a year ago, as far as she remembers. The apology note. Oh yeah, one of Randy's clients and friends forced himself on her sometime around a year ago, but everyone made up and things are great, as far as she can recall. And, oh yeah, the mysterious private phone calls coming in every few nights at our family home, where someone quietly listens on the other end for one of us to answer, and then abruptly hangs up. Yep, forgot about those too. Oh yeah, and one more thing. The uh, torn up note from my secret admirer, the one that was left on my car several years ago. I forgot about that as well. No idea who that's from either, by the way, and... Uh, I just kept that tucked away behind my dental insurance card and forgot I had it. Whoopsies. For someone as habitually forgetful as Teresa Stone, she damn sure remembered leaving the dress barn at 2.41 p.m., the afternoon her husband Randy was coldly executed in her office. Detectives didn't yet have enough concrete evidence to detain Teresa Stone, but they were laying the groundwork to eventually do so, 
by slowly and methodically going through her recollection of events so that they could later tear it apart piece by piece right in front of her. Okay, I want to ask you something again, like we asked you before. You going in and find him like you did and everything, and here's the thing, and, and, and please don't take this wrong. I told you before we had to ask questions and things yeah, to get details. We understand how people think and what goes on sometimes with people. When you went into the how uh, the office and you located him laying there on the floor mm-hmm. and you checked him and yelled at him and everything, uh-huh. we found a cartridge by his feet. You found a what? A cartridge. A shell casing. Shell casing. Did you, that's what we're asking you, if there was a gun laying by him or anything and you moved it? I didn't see anything. Okay. I swear. I did not see anything. That's why I didn't know where the blood was coming from. I felt I saw blood under his head and coming from his ear, and I saw his eye was swollen and his skin was discolored. So I didn't see anything. I I could not figure it out. That's why I thought maybe he hit his head or something. Okay. I I have no idea. Well, that's what we're saying here because talking to Joe and talking to some other people when, when I brought you up here, some else called on me too. They said your son, your son, your husband does have the forty caliber handgun. He does. Yes. And that's what we're saying. And you being his wife, you should have seen or known about it. The um, only one that I have ever seen is that little bitty one. Now, like I said, um, I don't go down in the safe downstairs. Right. So, well, uh, all I know what he has downstairs in the safe is his shotgun. He carried this one in his briefcase. He did? Yeah. So, that's the information we're getting. That's what we're being told. And that's from somebody, somebody that knows him real well. So, what we're saying to you is well, okay. <clears throat> if you would have seen it, okay, well, maybe thing. he shot himself. Well, no. We're saying, we're no, we're saying, if you maybe maybe shot himself for some wrong reason or another, would you have grabbed? Would you have gun, gun just to say it don't look right? No, absolutely not. Okay. I don't touch guns. He knows I don't like them, and I don't touch them no, at all. But I, I asked him this morning to bring an Avon book for me, and I assumed he put it in his briefcase. So I opened his briefcase, and it wasn't in there. But I didn't see a gun in there. Okay. I didn't see anything in there. Okay. Because I opened it up. And I did not see a gun in there. I did not know he had another gun. Not like that anyway. Yeah. Well, and that's what we're saying. And don't get me don't scare wrong. Please don't get us wrong. No. But the thing is, is this is sometimes people react will, differently. React differently, yeah. And they will do something that you least expect them to do. We've dealt with this a lot. Um, and, and that goes with suicides and everything because we've had them before where they didn't even leave a. And you, and you would tell us if there was a gun there, if you would have picked it oh, up and yeah, moved it someplace. Yes, yeah. I, yes, absolutely. I'm a very honest person. And we do that. We have to do that for a safety factor, too. Oh, no. If you don't know guns very well, I, you don't want to put it in your car or something. You have to go off when you're driving. Are you kidding me? When he asked me to go into the house to get that gun for him off of his nightstand, uh-huh. that's all I can do is carry that thing out there. When did he do that? Oh, he, if he ever leaves it, okay. he carries it with him everywhere we go. Okay. And that's the little one you're the talking The little bitty about? one, yes. Okay. He carries it with him everywhere we go. Oh, yeah. I was also in Randy's briefcase this morning, looking for an Avon booklet I asked him to bring in. The very same briefcase, several of Randy's friends and those closest to him have already told detectives working the case he keeps the missing forty caliber Glock handgun in. The one I forgot about that he sold, uh, let's see here. About a year ago. You get my drift yet? Teresa Stone is full of shit, and detectives already know it. They got her to admit knowing about Randy's Glock handgun, and that he used to keep it in his briefcase. They also got her to admit that she rifled through Randy's briefcase the very morning he was killed, 
according to her, because she was innocently looking for an Avon booklet she asked him to bring in. Finally, they also got her to admit that she didn't touch or move any firearms or shell casings in that office suite as a means of covering up Randy's possible suicide. If it wasn't suicide, we can also presume it was not accidental, as Randy was a trained United States Marine Corps combat veteran, a man literally prepared for anything except the possibility that he would one day be killed by someone he knew and trusted. But as far as detectives were concerned, Teresa did have an alibi. And it seemed, at least at the time, she was the one who genuinely discovered Randy's body and was likely not the individual who actually pulled the trigger. But there were gaps in that story as well. We also obtained all crime scene and autopsy photographs from the Independence Missouri Records Division related to this homicide investigation. And several of the photographs immediately disprove a few critical claims made by Teresa Stone earlier in her first interview with homicide detectives. First, there was the claim that Teresa only saw the blood coming from Randy's ear and that his eye was, quote, swollen. But she also disclosed to police how the blinds in the office had been closed, something that was out of the ordinary for that time of day, given the very first thing she did that morning when she opened the office was to pull open all of the blinds to let the natural sunlight in. She also revealed to police that she allegedly did not turn on the lights in her office, where she eventually discovered Randy's body. The photos we obtained, absent the obvious flash used on the camera, depict a dark office space, one where delineation of certain details would have proven nearly impossible, including Teresa's claim that she did not bend over and touch her husband, but noted that his eye was swollen, that he was bleeding from his ear, and that his skin was discolored. Observations, by the way, all of which are accurate. But if Teresa Stone had knelt down and got a close enough look at her husband to make out these observations, she surely would have also likely noted the partially coagulated pool of blood beneath Randy's head and the bone and brain tissue spattered about the wall, filing cabinet, and carpet beneath and beside his body. Also, the position of Randy's body only brought more questions to Teresa's claims. He was found laying on his right side, his legs and arms gently crossed. In the photographs, he can be seen wearing white tennis shoes, a pair of blue jeans, and a dark brown t-shirt. His head is also tilted slightly toward the ground, facing the underside of Teresa's desk. So his swollen eye is barely noticeable under direct observation from above, under the brightly lit flash of the investigative team's camera. Further, they actually had to position the camera at an odd angle underneath Teresa's desk to get a full view of Randy's face where you can actually see that his eyes are indeed badly swollen. How in the hell Teresa Stone would have seen these apparent injuries in a darkened office space after just having come into the building after having been outside in the bright sunlight before her pupils had time to adjust is beyond incredible. It's impossible, simply put unless she had actually turned the lights on and closely examined Randy's lifeless body there on the floor to make sure he was actually dead. She then stepped over him to put on her Bluetooth headset, and if you know anything about how those things actually worked in 2010, you know that you had to first power it up and connect it to the desktop phone before you could even dial a number. According to Teresa, she first called her parents back at her and Randy's house where her mother answered. And though detectives have not yet confronted her on this next discrepancy, 
They already know that she told her mother, quote, Randy has been shot, and then requested they head straight to the office to be with her. They also know that when she called 911 from that same Bluetooth headset just moments later, she told the dispatcher that she found Randy laying on the floor, that he was bleeding from his ear and was unresponsive, and made no mention at all of anyone having been shot. It seemed Teresa Stone was suffering from severe selective memory, most notably that she only remembered details that would further separate her from the crime scene and her husband's murder. But if Teresa wasn't the one who ultimately pulled the trigger, then who did? In a show of good faith or sheer stupidity, Teresa agrees to hand over her cell phone to detectives so they can go through it in front of her and eventually have a technician pull captures of all of her texts and other messages off the device before releasing her for the evening. But there was still the unresolved issue of the torn-up note from Teresa's alleged secret admirer. It had been hastily torn into nine separate pieces, so detectives made short work of putting it back together. As is standard protocol in police interview and interrogation training, detectives asked Teresa about the note again to see if her story has changed at all, a likely indicator that she is being deceptive and creating falsehoods on the fly while trying to cover her own tracks. If you remember, she previously stated that the note had been written and left on her car, quote, several years ago. But just a few minutes after her initial admission, it seemed she was already able to come up with a more specific timeline of when she actually received the note. But she still had no earthly idea who could have written it, though they clearly knew her. In the secret admirer, you said that he left a letter on your car... A year or so ago? Oh, it's probably been three or four years ago. And you've had this note in your purse. I totally forgot about it, to be honest with you. And when did you, did you tear it up and throw it in the trash? Yeah, I just, I just found it yesterday okay. when I was looking for my, because I, I scheduled my daughter for uh, her wisdom teeth to be pulled out. Mm -hmm. So as I was going through, I found it and I just ripped it up and threw it away. I didn't really want my husband to find it. So. Did he know about the, what did, what did the note say? You know what? I have no idea. When you said it said happy birthday on it, I was like, huh? Yeah, happy birthday on the front and the bottom said happy birthday. And I had a bunch of different initials, like text message initials. I have, I honestly cannot remember. To tell you the truth, I do not remember what it said. Well, it looks like a lot of people wrote on your Facebook. Yeah, my church members. They're all my church members. Yeah. We don't have any enemies. That's what we're trying to get at here. We, to us, if we see you're used to getting your text messages and reading them stuff. To us, if it was a third person, sure. we could look at it and say, "Wait a minute." I understand. But you would take it as non-threatening. Threatening, right? Right. I understand. As the detective continues looking through Teresa's phone while seated in front of her, he notes the constant stream of Facebook messages and texts from concerned friends and family, all expressing condolences and prayers to the Stone family. Teresa's loving husband of nearly 20 years had just been murdered hours before, after all. But apart from one strange man who entered the office suite the month before asking for bus fare, and someone previously stealing the building air conditioning units, the Stones didn't seem to have any enemies. They were God-loving, church-going Christians, both very active members of the congregation at New Hope Baptist Church. And given the state of Randy's body at the time Teresa discovered it, they already knew that someone else had to be involved, and that that individual was the one who likely pulled the trigger earlier on that afternoon, 
while Teresa went about her carefully orchestrated list of errands. But apart from earlier admissions of a one-time alleged sexual assault from a Kansas City police officer and Stone Insurance client, the only promising clue at this point was that note, the one from Teresa's secret admirer. So before turning her loose for the evening, detectives tried one last time to get Teresa to admit that she not only knew who that note came from, but that it was representative of something deeper than simple infatuation and admiration from afar. That that note revealed an extramarital affair between secret lovers, a clue Teresa Stone had most certainly accidentally left behind. On the, and again, man, I want you to just be real honest. I think you've been there. On the secret admirer, uh-huh. um, do you know who this person I, is? I don't. I'm sorry. I have no idea. I, I, mean, I haven't I'm going to what Detective Stewart had said. He had said something about a happy birthday on yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, so did this person know evidently they you and know when know, your birthday was? Evidently they know me. I don't know who they are. I couldn't tell you left from right who the heck he is. I assume he is a guy. Sorry, I didn't mean for that to be funny. But I I don't, seriously, I have no idea who he is. And it's been several years. Um, Like I said, I I just found it. I wasn't looking for it. I just ran across it and couldn't believe I still had it. So I thought "Hmm, I better get rid of it because I surely didn't want my husband to find it. And if he did, I I mean, I would just explain to him that it was just left in my car window, just like I'm telling you guys, I'm being honest with you, and I have no idea who he is. I don't know. It's been several years ago, so I, I honestly don't know. I have never gotten any more letters, nothing. I've never gotten phone calls, no mysterious phone calls, no no nothing. Okay. So, I, I know, don't know. No affairs on the side or anything like no. that? No. He hasn't had an affair with someone. And just be honest. Several years ago, he did. Okay. But that was right after we got married. Okay. That was a long time ago. Okay. But nothing recently? No. You guys haven't been separated or anything? No, no, or no. Any issues with I them? mean, he had, he, and I hate to say this, but, but I feel like you and, need And be to honest go. with me. You need because, to go. you know, I mean, anything I know. can help us. He, um... He he had trouble with pornography, so... Um, he had trouble with pornography? Yeah. But um, we got through all that. Okay, when you say he had trouble with pornography, was he watching it on TV or no, doing it on a computer? He would, he would pull it up on the computer. Okay. But that was... It's been several. It's been several months, probably a year or so. Okay, so but within the past year, when we say he's having trouble with pornography. What do you mean by that? Well, he would just go on websites and just okay. look at them. Okay. And I approached him about it, so. Okay. We got that out of the way. And when you say you got it out of the way, what do you mean by that? Well, he. That's why his computer is the way it is now. He switched his computer so I could see everything. Because it used to be like this so I couldn't see anything mm-hmm. so he turned it like this so whenever I did walk into his office or walk past his office I could see everything he was working on because he wanted to be honest with he me. He didn't go to any counseling for no, the no it, wasn't, okay. it wasn't that deep. And, and it didn't cause any friction that no. you guys were wanting to get separated no, or no. never had to leave the residence or anything no one left the residence or anything? No never okay. absolutely not ever.
Before heading back to her family for the evening, Teresa drops a bombshell, alleging that it was never her who had any type of extramarital affair, but Randy, who did so many years before, just shortly after they were married. She repeatedly asserts, quote, I'm being honest with you here, while also describing his supposed porn addiction in detail to detectives. She also casually mentions how Randy sought counseling for the issue from his trusted confidant and close friend, Pastor David Love from church, and how Randy changed his behavior and how they were able to quickly put the issue behind them and move forward with their marriage. And though it was still very early on in their investigation, detectives had that note, the contents of which suggested it was Teresa, not Randy, who had something to hide. Happy birthday, love. You are so very precious to my heart. You possess the most tender spot in my heart. I care for you more than anyone on earth, and I desire to be with you every moment of every day. Your birthday is my favorite day. I remember nine years ago telling you I had something for you in my office. It was me. I wanted to give you me. That kiss you took and then you gave me one back. I felt like it was my birthday. Now your birthday has become a sort of anniversary for me. I love this day so much and it is all about you, the most amazing woman in all the world. I love you so much. I woke up way before my alarm and all I could think about was you having a super birthday. I'm not in control of things yet, but when we are fully together, your birthdays will always be exciting, full of surprises, romantic and all about loving you. You are the center of my world. I praise you. I adore you. I'm blessed by you. I need you. I love you. Happy birthday, young, beautiful, sexy lady. You are wonderful. A-I-E, H-P, M-M-T, G-D-B, W-L-U-A-N, L-Y-P, B-O-E. Prominent evangelist Dwight Moody once said that church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. Mother's claim as much as true for a sick or unhealthy marriage. But the secrets harbored within the New Hope Baptist Church were anything but revitalizing or healing to Teresa and Randy Stone's marriage. Randy was always preparing for life, to not only survive, but to thrive. He was a loving father, a generous husband, and above all else, someone who was willing to admit his own faults and to change when necessary for those he loved. Teresa was not. She was planning and preparing for a new life, a new love, with the writer of that secret note. But who was the author? And who killed Randy Stone? Stay tuned for part two and the truth next time on Invisible Choir. God knows how to welcome home his children. It's a warm, bright, happy home. When Randy got home Wednesday afternoon, it was warm, it was bright, it was happy. There's no such thing as a child of God's getting to heaven without it being such a precious home going. Why? Because of the preparation. There's so much preparation that goes into this precious home going. A lot of preparation goes into his children coming home. The anticipation is almost overwhelming. It's something like this. We're waiting. We're waiting. Here he comes. He's almost here. Hey, he's home. He's here. Randy was in Desert Storm for about nine months. He got home just in time. Teresa was about to pop with Michael. I think she was the day before Michael was born. Is that right? You talk about a homecoming. He's almost here. I don't know if Teresa was talking about Michael or Randy. He's almost here. Randy got home just in time for Michael to be born. 
If you want to know what Randy looked like back then when he got home, look at Michael. He looks just like him, doesn't he? Psalm 23 is one of our favorite passages. The Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Now listen to this. He leadeth me beside the still waters. There's a lot of anticipation here. He restoreth my soul. Only God knows how to restore a soul. Only God can do that. He can take your sin, sick soul, and he can restore it. He's our shepherd. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now listen, those three verses are talking about someone in another person tense, not the, the first person. The Lord is my shepherd. It's like he's in the other room. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me. He did all those good things. But when it comes to verse 4, family, and it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? It doesn't say the Lord, the person in the other room will be. It says, Thou art with me. It changes everything. It comes into the, the first tense. You are with me, Lord, in the valley of the shadow of death. Do y'all have a computer at home? Yes, I do. Is it all, I mean, is it all Yes, it is, but it crashed like a month ago. Okay. So I don't have anything on it. Okay. I have nothing on it. Let me ask you something. Um, Detective Brady, did he, did he mention anything to you about me being followed? I was followed last Thursday when I took my daughter to school, and I was followed again on Monday. Okay. And my daughter was with me and she was freaking out. Well, I can tell you one thing. I've never cheated on my husband, I can tell you that right now. I was faithful to him till the day he died. L-O-I-P. I'm pretty sure I know what that means. Okay. Do you want Tell me to say it? Yeah. Lick your pussy. Okay. Okay. I think this man get dig big. Okay. 